Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams here with another one of our off-season case studies. I had a really fun chat with rugby league journalist and all-round media creative Stephen Russo. You'll be hearing that in just a moment. Before we get there, it's that time of year again, the Tom Brock Lecture, the 22nd annual Tom Brock Lecture, this year featuring Joe Gorman, author of the award-winning book Heartland. Uh, It recently won the Queensland Premier's Award as a work of state significance. So uh, really exciting to have Joe Gorman on board to deliver the Tom Brock lecture. This year will be a lecture with a difference due to obvious circumstances. It's not going to be in person this year, but via Zoom, which is fantastic news for uh, all the people who can't usually get to the Tom Brock lecture. So, So RLD listeners in Queensland, in the UK, in New Zealand, in Singapore, in Switzerland, in the US... From wherever you are in the world, uh, I want to see your names on the registration list. It's open to all this year, so I'm hoping on the night as many of you as possible are tuning in from your lounge rooms. Uh, As always, it's going to be a fantastic night. Uh, Really pumped for it. So uh, you can register at www.tombrock.com.au. Follow the Tom Brock Bequest Committee on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, We'll also be promoting it heavily on our social media feed, so look out for a a link uh, to register. I'll also put one in the bio for this episode. Uh, Just last thing before we get to uh, my chat with Stephen, just wanted to fill you in on our off-season and what you might expect from us uh, going forward over the next couple of months. So uh, Andrew and I are very hard at work on Season 2. That work is ongoing and it will require an actual hiatus. So uh, after today, we've got at least one more club-based case study coming. Uh, There may be a a couple of episodes to come after that, Uh, but basically we'll very shortly be taking a hiatus for the rest of the year and coming back with season two of the Super League War in January. Uh, I want to thank you for your patience with us. Uh, I think you all know how much work goes into uh, putting this series together. We've had a great response to the case studies, which we really appreciate. And a lot of people contacting us saying they can't wait for the Manly one or the St. George one, whichever it might be. Uh, We would love to do each club or as many clubs as possible over the course of our series. Uh, But you you won't hear all of those before we start season two. So as I said, we'll be taking a break uh, quite shortly so we can have an uninterrupted uh, break to to get season two ready, which is coming along very nicely, and uh, we're really excited about it. So, if we don't get your club this time, uh, we will definitely do our best to to get a case study in before the end of our series. So, at, at the conclusion of season two, you're likely to 
hear quite a few more. But once again, Andy and I both want to thank you all sincerely for sticking with us uh, for all this time. I, I know it requires a lot of patience, but we want to get the story right, uh, and that requires a lot of work. And with that, we are going to get to our Balmain case study. Uh, so here is my chat with Stephen Russo. Enjoy. <laughs> So I'm here with Stephen Russo, another one of our off-season case studies today. It's the Balmain Tigers. Steve, how are you going, mate? Oh, thanks for having me, Michael. Really appreciate being here. And yeah, I'm great. Thanks. Uh, really happy to have you here. Um, I wanted you as my Tigers guy for a number of reasons. Chiefly among them is I, I love the the creativity that your league passion has manifested itself in. You do some amazing work. Um, what, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, Russos1991, so R-U-S-S-O-S-1991, that's my Twitter handle, it's my surname plus the first initial, the year I was born. Yeah, so anyone not following, uh, get on top of that, because I I just, I I don't don't know how to put it into words, but like, to me, you are one of the, the great examples of the creativity and the talent that's happening on the margins of rugby league media. Uh, some of the stuff you do with it, you're big into the jerseys, jersey art, uh, you've got your your news items that you're doing at the moment, which are great. You used to you had a few like where you were doing like Twitter before there was Twitter. Yeah. Um. Can you just kind of talk a bit about what you do and, and what your passion is in terms of rugby league? Oh uh, yeah. Well, I guess uh, I I was trained as a journalist, and when I first came out of uni, I was uh, a rugby league journalist at Rugby League Week for two seasons. But um, I moved overseas, and I was living in England, and I. Because I wasn't a visa and not a permanent residence, uh, permanent resident, I didn't really have a lot of choices in terms of my job. So I took a kind of a few marketing jobs that didn't have anything necessarily to do with sport. So while I was doing that to kind of feed my passion for rugby league, I started creating. I don't know. I had a blog which is still operational. It's called uh, the Wraparound, as in uh, rappers W R A P, as in the old kind of move that they used to old set play. And it was just a kind of way to channel my creativity and love of the game and to kind of keep challenging myself to do new things. So, yeah, there was the kind of how would how would old games be covered on Twitter and I had a look at the 1989 grand final. I think I did the 1987 Origin Decider mm. and the 1985 um, Challenge, Challenge Cup, Cup yeah, final. That was my favourite. Yeah, great. yeah, it was good. Um, the reason I kind of did that was just because it was a modern take on things it allowed me to kind of express my sense of humor. And to be perfectly honest, part of it was kind of, I remember when I was living in England and I couldn't really find a job in something I really wanted to do. Employers or not employers, like career advisors were telling me, you need to show what kind of value add you can bring to companies. And I kind of thought, well, I want to create content for sporting teams and organizations. So if I can kind of do that and kind of show them a bit wacky, a bit kind of crazy, have some kind of weird ideas, that was the kind of thinking behind that, yeah. It's, um, I, I put you in, when I say like rugby league media on the margins, I think about some other, you know, Twitter accounts, other projects, um, Jack Cronin with the jerseys. I, I love his work. I'd humbly offer ourselves in, in this group. The, the thing to me that really emphasizes the point is the fact that we have to call rugby league project something that's happening on the margins. You know, they've never had any support from the NRL. It's such an incredible resource for all of us. And it just started because there was a need for it and it wasn't being fulfilled via official channels. When I think about that, what I think about what you do and, and you know, various others, it just re-emphasizes for me how poorly served we've been from 
traditional media, media over the last couple of years. I think there's a degree of truth in that, but I think it's it's getting better. Yeah. It's probably not as good as it needs to be, but it's getting better. Um, I think the NRL is starting to do a pretty good job. Uh, they've started recently streaming a few old games via their social media channels. Fox has done a bit of that, and I think it's certainly there. And I think, for example, the fan... If I'm going to give a plug to the fan, which I was recently on, actually, they do a really good job yep. of acknowledging the game's history. So I think people in mainstream media are starting to realize that the appetite is there. And I'm really glad for that because this game, I think part of the reason I love rugby league is because of its rich and frankly, sometimes quite bizarre history. So uh, I'm glad that people are starting to acknowledge it and take the game's history a little more seriously. Yeah, it's, it definitely has improved. Like the, the documentaries the NRL is putting up on NRL.com have been great this year. You mentioned the fan. It, it's just, it feels like the NRL and Fox, they're sitting on this treasure trove that we just, you know, get drip fed to us. And I'd, I'd love to see like more of the serious historical content, the more kind of wacky stuff or, or humorous stuff. I think there's so much scope there. So I'm really glad that there's people like you who are um, filling in the gaps and yeah, highly entertaining and highly uh, evocative stuff you're, you're doing with, with all the, um, you know, the videos and everything else. It's really great. Well, thanks. I really appreciate that. That's kind of what I go for. <laughs> <laughs> so just a bit about your background. I Just because I've, you know, I've followed you on Twitter for a while and, uh, you know, seen the stuff you put out, especially about the Tigers. That's why I've got you here as my Tigers guy. Yeah. But I, I have made this a, a dual case study, Tigers and retro as a concept as it relates to rugby league. So I was astounded when I learned that you were born in 1991. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit of a weird one. I think it's basically because I'm a massive nerd, honestly. <laughs> um, to give you a bit of context, and I think a bit of you need a bit of context to understand why I'm kind of like why I am. Uh, so... The reason I go for the Tigers is because, well, one, I'm from Sydney, but and I grew up in Russell Lee, which is a small suburb wedged between Dremoyne and Five Dock, and Sydney's in the west, so naturally I was going to be a Tigers supporter. But at the same time, I didn't actually really have a choice. My mother's grandfather, my mother's father, I should say, was born in Roselle, so he was naturally a Tigers supporter. And while my dad's father, my dad's father and mother, they were Italian immigrants, my father was born in Annandale and grew up in the kind of Balmain area. He went to Balmain High School, so it was natural that he would become a Tigers supporter as well. So having grown up in that area and had two family, both sides of my family both being Balmain supporters, I had no real choice. I had to support the club. And it's really funny. When I was a little kid, I really wasn't into footy at all. I was into trains and cartoons mainly as a little kid. And it wasn't until I was about probably 12, 13 that I really started to get into rugby league. And the interesting thing was at that point, the West Tigers were just awful. Mm. They were a really, really bad team. Like they were mediocre, actually. They weren't bottom of the barrel, but they weren't great either. And I kind of became fascinated by this Balmain side that came so close in the 1980s basically because they were good. It was good. And I like the idea that they came from a suburb that was basically two suburbs over from me. I like the fact that this team was an elite competition and it represented an area so close to where I grew up. So that's how kind of this retro footy obsession kind of start because I was really interested in like the Balmain Tigers from about 1983 through to 1990. So that that leads me to the, the question of Super League and you, you know, missed it when it was happening. When you learnt about it, when you got really into rugby league history and maybe learnt what was taken away from you as having a Balmain standalone team, what what were your thoughts on it then? Look, Super League's a really hard concept of me to kind of look. Even though I understand what went on, it's a really kind of it's a really hard concept to have a kind of really good opinion on because I just think 
there were so many different aspects. There were so many rights and wrongs on both sides. I mean, a lot of people turn around and go to me, oh, like, how can you how can you support the NRL when it essentially, the, the formation of the NRL basically led to the club you love being kind of obliterated. And I go, well, it's just the way it is. Um, I don't know how to articulate this properly, to be perfectly honest. But yeah, I don't blame Super League for Balmain Tigers' demise. I think in some respects, as much as I hate to admit it, it was kind of natural selection. It was not an area that was going to thrive. It's 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 league's club wasn't in a great position back then. And uh, I guess while I would have preferred to see Balmain be a standalone club, I think its best shot of survival moving forward was as a merged entity. And to be fair, while the West Tigers are considered to be a, a pretty mediocre club in a lot of people's opinions, to win a premiership within your first five or six years of existence isn't necessarily a bad thing. Mm, yeah, a lot that we're going to cover in the next hour from what you've said then. I want to spend a bit of time in that Balmain team and in rugby league in the 80s and 90s in particular. It's It seems when you think of retro as a concept in terms of rugby league, you get a bit in the 70s, maybe late 70s, when you start getting the, the jer- sponsors on jerseys. But it, it is really like the 80s and the 90s uh, in particular that seems to really stick in people's minds. And, and there's a, been, a, especially in the last couple of years, and I think this is something that Fox have done quite well with their retro round. It's something that people really seem to enjoy is the the 80s and you know now it's becoming the 90s as well. And I feel like that Balmain team is is the perfect encapsulation of rugby league retro. Um, I, I've got some thoughts on that, but do you have any yeah. opening thoughts? Yeah, I certainly do. <laughs> I mean, look, I think the big part of the reason that people remember them so fondly is because they're actually a good team. I mean, look, I know they didn't win a premiership, but they made the finals in 83 and then made the finals every season between 85 and 90. So they clearly weren't, there were no, they weren't slouches. They were clearly a very kind of well-coached, entertaining, well-drilled team. But I think the other thing is that the reason they've remained so popular throughout the years is because they had a lot of characters in that side. I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's kind of true. These are players who remember not necessarily just for their playing ability, but for their personalities. You had like the Wayne Pierce, the Mr. Perfect, glamorous fitness fanatic who never kind of gave up. And then you had Steve Roach, you know, that kind of knockabout prop who could be a bit of a mug on the field, but was still really lovable because he, you could tell he really cared about the fans and the players. And then you have Benny Elias, this guy that everyone liked to hate because he just he took every opportunity that he could to try and get an advantage over over um over their opposition and i think these people's personalities really shone and that was a big reason why this this team kind of stood out and have kind of stood the test of time in kind in terms of our memories and i think the other kind of reason why people are really nostalgic for this team is because they were good in a period where rugby league seemed to really grow i mean the winfield cup era if we disregard the fact it was kind of funded by cigarettes, it was a very good period of growth. Like 1983, the incorporation through to 1994, the game experienced monumental off-field growth and a few of the alterations to the rules and the increase in the professionalism kind of made it a much better product. And I think unlike today, the New South Wales Rugby League in that period somehow managed to straddle the kind of traditional roots of the game and acknowledging the history of the game while also having this kind of commercialism coming in. It wasn't all about money. We still had, we had a look in 1989, 1988, 89, we had a 16 team comp with a, 
a large bulk of those teams being the traditional foundation clubs or clubs that had come into existence during like the 30s through to the 60s. So I think the Winfield Cup, why people are nostalgic about that is because that period really was the kind of intersection between rugby league being growing out of this kind of kind of suburban doldrum while also being kind of a nationally kind of commercially viable kind of competition. Mm. And I think personally to me, that era, that those that Balmain team, the the two grand final teams, that's when I kind of came of age as a rugby league fan, like watching Ellery Hanley in 1988. It still astounds me that he only played eight games for Balmain because like it was, it's just so etched in my memory how much I fell in love with him and then rugby league as a result of that. Uh, and then into you know the following year, obviously the the classic grand final. Yeah. Uh, so, so personally, that's kind of where I come in on in rugby league. But more generally, I've I've, I've got some notes about why I think that the Tigers in particular are, are so emblematic of that period and and the way we look back on them. Um, firstly, it's the jersey sponsor combo. Uh, I know you spent a lot of time on this. I, I think that the Tigers Phillips is. Definitely, without a doubt, top five in in terms of the jersey and sponsor. I'd I'd say top three. I'd give it. Where, where would you put it? Uh, I'd probably give it the number one position, but that's because I'm incredibly biased. Yeah, <laughs> I'm actually more of a fan of the Alpha Micro jersey for some strange reason. <laughs> but, um, but no, no, it's definitely true in terms of iconic status. It I can acknowledge it's one of the best jerseys mm. going around, and I would put it number one mainly yeah. because of unbiased. Yeah, but I, th- I think a lot of non-biased people would, would say the same thing. There's something that just seeing that jersey just tells you so much. Yeah. You know exactly what that means, and it just floods your head with, with memories and thoughts and, and all the rest of it. And, you know, just seeing that, I, I think of, you know, Junior, you know, absolutely devastated on the field after the 89 grand final. And, and at the time, like watching that live, that stuck in my head so much. I was like, okay, so that's what it looks like when you lose a grand final. And in subsequent years when I'd, I'd be looking out for it and sometimes you just wouldn't you wouldn't see it. And it was only like years later that I realized that, oh no, that was a bad one. That was a really bad one. That's what you look like when you go through all that and lose. Yeah, I guess just because they felt like they had an unassailable lead at yeah. the time. But I think as a Balmain fan and a lot of players will acknowledge on the side as well, Balmain were never going to win that grand final. I know they had that lead, but look, Canberra dominated that first half and Balmain's tries were pretty flukish, yeah. to be perfectly honest. I think as much as it pains me to admit this, Canberra deserved to win that grand final. What is your... There's so many points in that game that something could have broken and the result may well have been different. What is your number one moment in that grand final? I know this is going to sound horrible and I don't want to sound disrespectful to NRL or ARLC Commissioner Wayne Pierce, but he really shouldn't have dropped that ball. I mean, Michael Neal getting ankle that's, taps. That's the one for me. I know, I know. And Benny Lice, that's just bad luck. But And this is hard for me to say to Junior because I know he had a problem with his left eye that made his vision impaired, but by the looks of it, it was a pretty easy ball. Mm. If he had grabbed that ball, then he had Tim Brasher unmarked on the outside, they would have scored. I mean... Yeah, that's especially painful to me to watch, especially for someone who put in so much for his club and is such a revered figure. It's really painful to watch that because as as a player, I really respect Wayne Pearce and to see him kind of drop that ball, it, it was hard. I, obviously, I watched it uh, retroactively. I was yeah. born when it happened, but um, it was it was painful to watch. Yeah, yeah, uh, for so many reasons. Uh, Wayne Pearce is another, another thing I had down on my retro list. The head tape 
Uh, I, th- I think Ciro and the shoulder pads, like those two things, kind of um, really stand out as well. The, the hair in general, like I think the this Balmain team is one of the great hair teams of all time, which I, I think goes a long way to giving them that that status. You've got the Kevin Hardwick and Kerry Helmsley. McNeil, I think, the best shade of red in rugby league history. Yeah, I saw McNeil recently. I thought he's lost a bit of the red. It's gone a bit more brownish, actually. So, yeah, they did have a lot of memorable haircuts. I mean, there was a few mullets. I think Benny Mm. Elias sported a mullet for a little bit in the late 80s. Tim Brush's mullet in 89 was majestic. And then kind of disappeared completely in the (laughs) mid-90s. Wayne Pierce had a bit of a mullet as well in the back end of his career. So I can definitely understand the appeal of said haircuts. (laughs) But that that brings me to the, the thing that really stands out in my mind about that team is how much they've become uh, just the stand-in for everything to do with with Balmain and, you know, since they've merged West as well. Like any controversy involving the West Tigers for the last 20 years, who do we go to? The same five players from that team to get their thoughts. And it's like nothing else that happened in Balmain's history or West history matters. Like just those two years just like so overpowers the public memory of Balmain. That's an interesting thing. And I actually do feel a bit sorry for Western Suburbs side of the merger. Go, why are we constantly going to Balmain legends? And I actually think that's a very legitimate kind of concern. But I think the only reason why that happens is because they were such memorable personalities. And I think with no disrespect for Western Suburbs, uh, they weren't particularly good in that era. So they don't have any personalities that really stood out. And at this point in time, their players who were very, the players who were the key figures when they were good back in the mid sixties, they're not, they're either not around or just not, not kind of, they're, they're not because of their age, then they're kind of shying away mm. from the media and rightly so. They, yeah. That that's just because of their age. So I think that's part of the reason as well. But I a hundred percent agree with a lot of, I don't want to get into kind of factional arguments between, uh, the two kind of groups in the the West Tigers fan group, but it's true. I do I do actually feel for Western Suburbs and go. Well, it is pretty silly that they keep going to West to Balmain Legends yeah. for for opinions on West Tigers. Although that might change moving forward because the West Tigers are now twenty years old. So with Benji Marshall retiring, you might start see people going to Benji or Scott Prince or Robbie Farah moving yeah. forward. I, I think you're right. I think it's already starting to happen to some extent. The the example that I see that's quite comparable is the St George in the eighties and nineties. It, it seemed that it would always go back to the the eleven in a row era, and it was all, would all be always be those talking heads talking about what was wrong with St George. And you can see with the players in subsequent generations, I think there was a real chip on their shoulder about having to to live with that history. Whereas now, you know. 20 years on from the merger it's it's and you know 20 years that era receding 20 years further into the past that's kind of definitely gone away i think it also has to do with all of those players from the Bowman era and probably from that st georgia they were a lot more outgoing mm. because they weren't necessarily media trained players who weren't to who weren't told watch what you say during their kind of career they don't mind sharing their opinions post post uh post retirement because they're just not conditioned like that it would be interesting to see whether uh, media trained players moving forward will be as outspoken mm. as their kind of predecessors. That's really interesting, actually. Like, it seems now we we, ha- we still have the archetypes. There's the the no nonsense prop who you know just says outrageous things on the air. But there's yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. You wonder how that's going to play out. They're getting media trained in a different way. 
But I, I don't know. Do you need that just raw, unfiltered rugby league mind to? It's hard to really say, to be perfectly honest. Um, I think it comes down to personal preference. Like, if to use my example, I'm someone who is generally quite honest, but I like to think things things through before I say them because, look, nobody really wants to, whether intentionally or not, get them in get uh, to provoke people that they respect or people who who have a position of power. And I can definitely understand that kind of position that current day players have. It's a very mm. difficult conundrum. So let's move on to Balmain, you know, moving through the 90s. And that was, you know, the last era of glory for Balmain as a standalone club, uh, era of glory where they didn't ultimately win anything. They make their last semifinals in 1990. And from there, it's it's a fairly swift decline in all aspects of of them, them as a club. And I know I'm going to upset a lot of traditional Balmain fans with this section, but I thought we should spend some time looking at that decline and you know maybe some of the reasons behind it. So if you talk about on-field, well, I've said it right then, 1990, last time they make the finals, they had some okay years in the next 10, but like nearly making the finals you know, a couple of times, is that really the basis for a future? No, of course not. And look, there's a lot of, there, like, there's a lot of factors behind that. And look, the easiest thing to say is, and it's a cliche, but it's partially true, Alan Jones. Look, obviously a very good broadcaster, very good at what he does, but what, he just didn't know how to coach rugby league. Yep. He had no idea what he was doing. And look, it's pretty obvious. Every player who kind of played under him with the ground in rugby league said, He'd he'd constantly come up with the same tap move. We had we had all these defensive structures organized, and he would go run for space, not the face. And he goes, that just didn't work in rugby league. Rugby league at that point was a very disor as was a very disoriented, very defense orientated game, and his philosophy and lack of knowledge of the game just didn't fit. But to his credit, and I I, I don't say this lightly, to his credit, at least he wasn't paid for his time. Mm. And a lot of people from that time actually said he did a lot for the club from a sponsorship perspective. But yeah, I think the reason they went down, a big key reason is because he just wasn't a rugby league coach. Mm. The other thing is they just didn't have the cattle. Yeah. Look, that last 1990 team, you had you had the likes. You had Wayne Pierce retire. You had Bruce Maguire, who was a very good back rower, moved to Canterbury. And look, you still had probably Benny Elias, Paul Sirenin, and Tim Brasher as the th- three kind of linchpins in that team. Um, and while they were good, it's just that Balmain just weren't having the same quality coming through, whether it was through their junior ranks or whether it was through their recruitment. And once again, we're looking at, and that comes down to the off field kind of thing as well. Balmain, obviously, especially after Star City, wasn't getting a lot of cash coming through because from what I can gather, their poker machine revenue wasn't as big. And while we had a salary cap, you obviously have situations that you still still happens now. Players will want to go to clubs that have really good facilities. I mean, to put in perspective, Balmain in nineteen ninety two had an operating budget of two million dollars. Mm. Compare that to that year's those year, uh, the nineteen ninety two Premiers Brisbane, whose operating budget was six million dollars. I think so. Balmain were behind the eight ball in that regard. So I think there are a lot of kind of factors. I think it would be really, really easy and really kind of cheap to just go Alan Jones. But while he did play a part. That wasn't the key reason either. That that wasn't the the sole reason, I should say. I think Alan Jones is a, a very good example, and I, I actually can for, uh, can forgive them for making that hire because he was untested at that point in rugby league. He was only you know six years off the rugby union grand slam. He had obvious runs on the board as a coach, 
I, I don't think anyone really thought it was going to work out. But the other thing was the off-field stuff. That was a big part of the signing, the fact that he could maybe bring in some sponsors, hopefully get some big-name signings. I can understand them taking a punt when he was untested as a coach. The the one that really stands out is Souths making the same mistake, bringing him in as football director, knowing that he didn't understand rugby league and it was never going to work. He wasn't going to get the right people and he wasn't going to be able to turn them around on field as much as he might be able to bring in money off field. Yeah, I'm not privy to what Souths were doing. My only kind of thoughts were from that perspective he was just going to be kind of an administrator kind of organization or because i remember in, when they brought him in in 1994 bob mccarthy was the coach so i just say i guess they kind of just assumed that bob mccarthy would be in charge of actually devising football tactics and mm-hmm. alan would be would be involved with organization and possibly motivation but once again i'm not privy to what went on in south in 1990 no well, what happened was they told bob mccarthy that alan jones has final say on everything okay le- leading to bob mccarthy you know, resigning because he needed a hip operation supposedly six weeks later. So it it was, yeah, it was boneheaded. And, but it speaks of the same desperation that is maybe why Balmain brought him in, in the first place. You mentioned the uh, differences in the operating budgets. And when you have a club like Balmain, like struggling to make up the salary cap, not like shedding players because they can't afford them and South's in the same boat. Like it really shows you the imbalance of the comp at the time. I can definitely see what they're trying to do. I mean, you have a big personality who has a very big following on radio. He obviously commands massive amounts of money for his radio station for uh, through advertising. So I guess the logic, I can see the logic there, to be perfectly honest. Once again, from a playing perspective, I don't see why it was a particularly, I can't understand the kind of uh, appointment. But from the kind of off-field perspective, yes, I can understand. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think handing over the reins to the football department speaks of desperation oh. and you know, these were desperate circumstances. Uh, when you look at Balmain's administration at the time as well, there's it's clear that it's out of step with where the game was going. You had Keith Barnes, who, by all reports, a, a true gentleman, one of the you know one of the greats of the game and a club legend at Balmain. But as Andrew would say, he was like you know the, the kind of blazer, brill creamed official type, and you know maybe the last of of, of his kind really. Rugby league was going in a different different direction and I don't think he was going to be the man who was going to be able to get Balmain going in the right way. Yeah, I'm not sure. But I suspect that is part of the reason why I think Balmain ultimately affiliated itself with the ARL over Super League was because it kind of had that kind of core kind of loyalist, traditionalist kind of faction kind of running it. And mm. that's that was their decision to make. It's not I, I can't really understand. I can't really think of what, where I can't even really begin to imagine what would happen if things had gone differently. It's really hard to say. But yeah, I think part of that's part of the reason Balmain ended up being an ARL affiliated side because it had a very kind of traditional kind of board and a traditional kind of kind of club setup. Yeah, and and that seems to speak for the way they approach those discrepancies with which you always kind of heard from administrators and, and players like but we're a foundation club. It seems to always fall back on that. Uh, And I don't know, it only takes you so far, right? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I I wouldn't really like to be in their shoes. I think that would have been an incredibly difficult situation. And I think Balmain tried in earnest in times to become a more modern and more more kind of 
for want of a better term, with it club. And I think it, it had a lot of bad experiences trying to do that. And so when 1995 rolled around and they had a kind of, they had to make a decision, I can kind of understand from their perspective why they went with their kind of tried and, tris, tried and tested kind of Arco Quail kind of partnership. Yeah. And and the other thing, I, I don't want to jump ahead and get, let, let's save Super League talk because I want to get there eventually. Yeah. I want to sp- spend a bit more time on, on Balmain, you know, the troubles they had in the 90s. Uh, crowds really abysmal at a time when across the league, you know, there, there was substantial growth. Although it should be said that most of that growth was taking place outside of Sydney. But, you know, from just under 10,000 in 1990, falling to under 7,093, uh, under 6,000 in 1996 before an inexplicable, like, rise in 97 and 98 where they averaged over 10,000 both years. Um, I wonder if maybe there was a sense from the fans that like it, it's it's all it's it's at our door now. We've got to do something to stop this. I don't know. I suspect that ninety seven was a, a bit of an anomaly. I want to kind of, and I'm not suggesting for a second Balmain did this intentionally. But have you heard of the new Coke effect, where in the mid nineteen eighties Coca Cola released a new formula and it was called New Coke. Yeah. I think it was nineteen eighty five, and it was critically panned. It, Everyone said it tasted awful. So they re-released Coke. They re-released the original format and called it Coke Classic. Well, in in 1995-1996, Bowman were playing at a Parramatta Stadium mm. because the Sydney Tigers everybody hated yeah. universally. And then when they finally moved back to to Leichhardt in 1997, people were like, oh, we're back at Leichhardt. Oh, my God, this is great. We're back at our traditional home. And then they come flooding in coming back flooding in drones, I think it's just basically because people were like, oh my God, now they're back a Leichhardt after this yeah. dismal experience. I want to go back and f- feel that kind of elation I felt back when I was back a Leichhardt. I think, and this is, I'm not suggesting this is intentional at all. I think they unintentionally caused a spike in their crowds by going back to their yeah. traditional home. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't think of that, but you're probably right on the money there. Let, let's stay on that, the Sydney Tigers experiment, which... I don't know if Balmain thought it was going to be enough. You, you had people like John Quayle saying that, you know, Balmain are taking this bold step, but I don't think John Quayle would have thought that it was enough. Uh, and wildly unpopular move regardless. I think theoretically it made sense. I mean, there's no hiding from the fact that even in 1994, Leichhardt was a pain to get in and out of, mm. and it was quite dilapidated in some yeah. regards i mean everyone may- i don't care about the facilities like i i love it yeah. i think it's the best place to watch football and i would never trade it for anything in the world but from a kind of conventional perspective i can understand it's it's quite antiquated the facilities aren't great and even in 1994 it was pretty apparent that it wasn't a great place for a neutral to watch football i know for a fact they hired a consultancy firm and this consultancy firm actually told them they should move to Parramatta on the basis of a uh of a survey which said that the majority of Balmain fans actually lived close to Parramatta. Mm. But I think the club was actually pretty keen to either move to Melbourne or the Central Coast at that point to secure their long-term future. And from what I can gather reading a few books and a few articles, this consultancy firm said to them, no, Parramatta's the go. So they go, okay, we'll go to Parramatta. Because, yeah, they did make moves in 94 playing that were scheduled for three games in Melbourne, ended up canning the third one. But so you you think that was a, a real genuine... Um, consideration. Yeah, I think I wouldn't do any research. I think it's in Tiger Tiger Burning Bright by Ray Chesterson. Uh, he actually says there's a bit where he goes, "Yeah, Balmain were strongly trying to establish links with 
with Melbourne and the Central Coast and this consultancy firm that they had kind of engaged said to them, no, most of your, most of your supporters live out Parramatta way. That's, it's a better move to move there. Mm. Do you want me to go on with this topic? Yeah, yeah. I, to be perfect, I can't tell you why the move to Parramatta didn't work out. I, I mean, the evidence is clear to see it didn't work. I can only just kind of speculate. And I think part of the reason is rugby league's a bit of an anomaly in the sense that it's a sport that thrives on nostalgia and consequently, consequently, it's one of the only sports that seem to do better when it's played in rustic venues. Yeah. I it- mean... Yeah, I understand this whole idea of a game needs to be better, needs to be played in better, bigger venues and centralized venues to grow, and I think that makes perfect sense. But rugby league seems to be like a glitch in the matrix, and I think it has to do with the tribalism associated with the game and the fact it used to be based on suburban rivalries. So I wonder if it would have had a better chance if they kept Balmain and just sold it as, you know, we're very proud of our heritage and and our area, but we need to be in a modern stadium and, you know, sold the Parramatta aspect of it that way without changing the name. It's hard to say. I I do think the idea of moving a club 20 kilometres away from their home base to a club to in the same stadium as a club that they had a bit of rivalry with at the time is pretty ludicrous. Yeah. I know my old man hated it. Mm. Um, he would go, he went to basically every Leichhardt game between like 1973 and 19. 19- 94, and then as soon as they moved to Parramatta, I think he told me between 1995 and 1996, he went to two games mm. at Parramatta Stadium. Yeah. So, look, I, it's it's really hard because obviously I wasn't aware of what was going on, so I'm purely basically speculating based on stuff I've spoken about with my father and based on my understanding of, like, the game. But it's, it's really hard for me to pinpoint what went wrong in that regard. Mm. I think it speaks of a club that was looking for what its identity should be. You know, you mentioned the potential moves and the consultancy, uh, all the rest of it. And I think another really um, good example of that is in the jerseys over the course of the 90s. So I thought as the jersey guy, we we might break down the the Tigers in the 90s. Sure. Um, So fairly fairly static for the first few years, staying with that classic uh, the Phillips look, I think it was 93, they switched to MLC. No, so I think 19, there was, so if we're going to start from 1989, 1989, 88 was the same jersey. Yeah. 1990, they basically just put a trim, a white trim around the Phillips and the letters became thinner. 1991, they added midway through the season, the Today FM uh, sleeve patches. 92, they added... TV, oh, the Phillips. Okay. Phillips TV, yeah. Uh, and that was basically the same jersey in 93. 94 was the first year of MLC and actually changed their, spon- uh, their apparel sponsor as well. In 1984, since 1984, they'd been with Canterbury of New Zealand, but in 94, they changed to... I can, I don't know whether it's M Sport or Sport M. I've seen yeah. it both <laughs> ways, so I've never been quite sure. I think it's actually Sport M. Yeah. I know Paul Sirenin used to work for them. Oh, really? Yeah, because it was. I remember one of his old like star profiles, and it says like sales consultant. And <laughs> but in '94, they they still retained the classic look. Uh, yeah. And '95 was the year that uh, drastic jersey design. Can, can you break down the '95 jersey for me? Oh, it's an absolute monstrosity. A lot of people like it. Really? Like the hipster value of it. I hate it. Yeah. I think it's disgusting. It's horrible. What, what was with the purple Why? stripe? <laughs> you know what's really funny, though? They actually debuted that style of jersey in 1994 at the 7s. All right. And they were still Balmain. I don't know whether it had the purple stripe. There's a slight variation, but they actually gave it a trial run at the 7s because, yeah. you know, clubs used to experiment jerseys. 
but I don't know what the thought process behind it was. Like, just that weird mix of black and and this massive part of white, and it, it just made no sense. I, I don't know what they're trying to achieve with it, because it's not like it was a modern look. It, if anything, it was like harking back to a, a bygone era, but like doing a terrible job of it. I don't even know what they were trying to do, honestly. I'd love, I'd, if I could find a marketing, or I'd love if someone on Twitter who was in the know could tell me, because I'd love to get an understanding of it. Personally, I hate it. Yeah. And I'm really sorry to say that because I don't like bagging my club, but God, that was a hideous jersey. Just at least the, the purple stripe. We need to know why. What, what was the thought? I don't know. Maybe it was to give it a <laughs> feeling of uh, regalism. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, and then, is that then, a word? <laughs> uh, it, it is now. We'll, we'll, we'll go with it. Uh, and 96, much the, the same style. Although every photo I've found from 96, there doesn't seem to be a major sponsor. No sponsor. So for the whole year. Yeah, and they actually changed the logo slightly. So in 1995, you look at their jersey, still says Balmain Tigers on the uh, club patch, even though they were this brand of the Sydney Tigers and playing yeah. out of playing out of uh, Parramatta Stadium. But in 96, they changed the logo. It was the same logo, but it actually said City Tigers, Balmain 1908. All right. Okay, that was another thing. I was I was looking at the 95 jerseys and kept on seeing Balmain Tigers, but with an ARL logo. And I'm like, what is well, going on? Really interesting, because you know how um, Canterbury and Eastern Suburbs both rebranded in 95 mm. as well. Canterbury became Sydney Bulldogs, played out of Parramatta. East became Sydney City Roosters. They both had... Their original logos. Ah, so right. ninety five Canterbury's jerseys, the year they won the premiership as the Sydney Bulldogs, their jerseys still say Canterbury Bank's ah, right. Bulldogs and Eastern uh, Sydney City Roosters, sorry, their jerseys said Eastern Suburbs, even though they were rebranded the Sydney City Roosters. Yeah, and they still had the classic yeah. Roosters logo. Yeah. But they changed it to like the running hub of Roosters yeah, yeah. in uh ninety six. I uh, I used to work at a pub uh, in the eastern suburbs. And a guy who was a regular there showed me his tattoo. He had a rooster's tattoo. And he went with that Harbour Bridge, like anthropomorphized rooster. Like, what are you doing? You've, <laughs> you've got like a great classic logo that would look great as a tattoo. What? Anyway, that was... Uh, I, I call it the logos with attitude era. <laughs> you saw the Steelers change to that like weird... Oh, Sledge. Like, yeah. He had a name, 98. <laughs> Poor Sledge. He only got one year in the top grade. <laughs> no. You know, the Sharks changing... To a series of terrible variations on on their classic look. Yeah, they they've all did it. It all happened around. It was basically immediately after the Super League mm. era because, like, maybe it had something to do with the fact that the ARL trademarked. They remember, like, in '97, a lot of the teams didn't have their original logos because the ARL were basically well, these are our trademarks. Yeah, we can't use them. So I think a lot of these Super League alliance sides did change their logos. Not all of them. I think Canberra retained the old Raider for two more years, mm. but a lot of them did. Sharks had a new logo in '98. Uh, no, maybe not. But there were a few. Sharks yeah. definitely one that did change their logo. I think the the chess piece Broncos logo must have come in around that point. No, it came in two came in in two thousand. Two thousand. Um, let let's go back to the jerseys. The ninety seven jersey, which is another like weird little hodgepodge. You've the got pastiche. Yeah, so you've got a orange orange jersey with horizontal stripes along the bottom, and then the the classic chevron. Along the top. To me, it's, it's having it both ways. Yeah, the best of both worlds. The Miley Cyrus jersey. <laughs> um, the Hannah Montana rugby league jersey, if people get that reference. Probably not clearly not your demographic, but that's kind of what how I describe it. That wasn't necessarily a bad jersey. In, um, but they also had the... They brought back the uh, the Bumblebee jersey. Yeah, yeah. That was their 90 season heritage trip. Yeah. They bought that, that jersey in 97 and wore it occasionally. And then it became their because- permanent home jersey in 98, 99. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, I, I think it's 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 better than the 
you know, MLC era monstrosity. But I don't know. I don't know. What do you think of the, the Bumblebee style? I like the Bumblebee. Um, I'm more. I'm a bigger fan of the V, the, yeah. the traditional chevrons. But the Bumblebee, that was their original jersey design, yeah. and they had that until like the mid 19. No, I think they changed this to the V in the early 1940s. Mm. So I think it's it's a good heritage option. Yeah. I think if Balmain was still playing today, I'd prefer to them to be playing in the V with the uh, Bumblebee as the uh, as the heritage. But yeah, it's it's a nice solid jersey. It's very inoffensive. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think it's it's a it's a really good jersey. But I think the 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 V is a great jersey, you know. And that, like, the last thing I want to say about jerseys is like, why is it so hard for the West Tigers to have a good jersey? I don't know. <laughs> I this is going to sound horrible, and I don't want to sound like I always wear Balmain jerseys. I, the first West Tigers jersey I bought was a Balmain Heritage jersey, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I think the only West Tigers jersey I genuinely liked was their when they went really plain in about 09-10, when there was one black home jersey and one orange away jersey. And it was basically, there was no, there was it was just very plain. And I think, look, it's a really difficult exercise for them because once again, we constantly hear there are warring factions on the board. People want to dominate. So I suspect that filters through to the jerseys. But there was a time where they were just trying to do these really odd modern jerseys. Yeah. And I just I couldn't wear them because no. they're hideous. Like yeah. the jersey they won the premiership in was not a good jersey. No. It's got a honeycomb pattern. <laughs> it's got a honeycomb pattern on it. If you look under the uh, under the armpits, there's a honeycomb. I'm like, what was the thinking behind that? I, I actually had the the same thought when I was uh, doing some prep for this episode. I had the thought: Is that 05 premiership jersey the worst jersey anyone's ever won a comp in? And I didn't go to the the extent of actually like looking it up. But it, it's got to be up there. I love the Tigers, but it just uh, it definitely has to be up there. I have one. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I want to acknowledge the fact the Tigers had a pre- won a premiership, and yeah. I love it for that regard. In that regard, but honestly, it's it's not nice to look at. I, I think the West Tigers, when they wear white, it seems to it seems to look good. I, I think maybe they need a, a white a white base. Um, I like white as a color, and I'm a big fan. People who know me, I am a big fan of white jerseys. I think the West Tigers should basically have three kits. Mm. A predominantly white, a predominantly black, and a predominantly orange. Yeah. Because those are their three colours. Mm. And a lot of the Balmain faction at the moment are complaining about the absence of a predominantly orange jersey. And once again, I can understand that. And I can understand why it's like that because of the way the board structured. So I don't have a massive problem with it. But yeah, I think it would be very easy for the Tigers just to have a predominantly white, a predominantly black, and a predominantly orange jersey and just rotate them based on what the colours of the oppositions is. I actually didn't mind their first two original jerseys the West Tigers had in their first few seasons. There was a there was a predominantly black away jersey with an orange kind of, a modernist kind of orange V, and then there was a predominantly orange jersey with a, uh, with a kind of modernist white V. Um, that was pretty good. I think if the Tigers... And the two the two jerseys they have at the moment are fine. I've got oh, I think so them. too, yeah. They just need an orange one. Yeah. And I think that would placate all the fans. It's funny. I, I looked at their first jersey and their current jersey, and I think those two years are the closest they've come to getting it right. Yeah. So maybe they just lost their way for 15 years or so, and, and now they're, they're on the right path. I think there's a little... This is going to sound really weird, considering I'm a kind of jersey connoisseur, but I... I think there's a lot of commercial considerations that I don't know about and a lot of punters don't really think about that goes into making jerseys. There's a lot of probably a lot of marketing meetings, a lot of things they have to consider and a lot of 
I can't imagine it's actually a particularly easy thing no. to do to design a jersey. So yeah. it's it's very easy to criticize people and go, why is our jersey like that? But at the same time, like I think people have to realize that there's probably a lot of commercialities that we don't realize as fans. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think the other thing is we can't underestimate the the change in material Yeah. from, you know, we, we all remember these classic jerseys that we loved. You see clubs trying to do the same thing now and it just doesn't look right. Yeah. Like I, I think of Parramatta's jerseys in recent years, like they, they have the same classic, the thin stripes and everything, but something about the shiny jerseys, it just looks a bit off. I think the other thing is you have to consider what the sponsors want as mm. well, your major yep. sponsor. Because I think that Parramatta jersey, personally, I think it's great, but it's let down by the big white box. Yeah, yeah. I think yep. it's A-Land. Yep. But once again, A-Land puts a lot of money into this into this organisation. They need to have some kind of input into how their logo looks. And if they think it looks better that their logo stands out in a white box, I think they have that right as a sponsor of the club considering how much money they're putting Yeah, exactly. Into. Yeah. So I think a lot of factors go into yeah. that. Like, I mean, I hate the fact that the St. George V is cut by the St. George Bank logo, but, you know, I'm not going to complain about it. To be fair, Penfold's cut it before yeah, St. Yeah, George, right. St. Yeah. George Bank did yeah. as well. Yeah, um, oh, just, just staying on that, like, I remember a couple of years ago, St. George announced a sponsor late. Yeah. I think it was Bingo Bins or something. Yeah. And it was the, the tiniest, like, it, it was like a, a, a circle about, you know, five centimetres by five centimetres that was going to sit... Just like at the sternum level, yeah. you know, in between the V. And fans were outraged because they'd already <laughs> bought their official jersey for the year. And In the past, I know they used to do this, I think in Italy, in the past, clubs or sports stores would go, oh, we've acknowledged that this is something here's like a transfer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. a sew-on yeah. patch. What's the, well, basically what they do on the players' jerseys when mm. they get the new sponsor? They just basically yeah. put a, a plastic transfer or a vinyl transfer and just slap it on the sleeve. Yeah. I guess, I don't, once again, don't know the commercial realities, but that's always a solution for fans. Who who just need a bingo bins logo on their jersey? I, I knew we were going to get bogged down in the jersey section, so <laughs> so we'll try to ease out of it as smoothly as possible. Um, the other the other thing about Balmain in the nineties is is we've touched on it a bit, but the the shrinking geography, you know, declining junior base, something that a lot of clubs in Sydney were dealing with. That can you can you see an argument for them? staying as a standalone entity based on on all of those factors? This is a really hard thing to say because it's really... I People go, oh, no one in the in the inner West likes rugby league. Mate, I grew up in that area. The West Tigers were easily the most uh, loved and most supported team in that area. So I think the crowd support and the fan support is there. There is an appetite among for want of a better term, inner West yuppies to watch rugby league. There is. But yeah, they didn't have no... no I personally wouldn't want my kids playing rugby league because of the dangers associated with it. So the junior numbers is a serious concern. So I personally don't think Balmain could have gone gone alone in the future. Maybe if they took the money from Super League, the, that $4 million that was on offer when Super League kind of came to them and said, oh, do you want to join? The only thing thinking about it that I really would have thought would have given Balmain a long shot as a standalone club would be moving to the Central Coast. Because look, at I know the Central Coast has been trying to break into the NRL for years, but it's clear that the, the area has a big junior base. It has an appetite for a team, even now. They basically should have done what the Bears did in 1999, around 1994. That's my mm. personal opinion. Because you go to an area that's close to Sydney, 
fans would probably go, you know what, it's a bit far away, but it's well linked by train, and I'm not going to a territory owned by another team. This is a brand new territory. I can get the tra- I can get to Graham Park or North Power Stadium, whatever it's called now, Blue Tongue, quite easily. And they'd have a massive junior base, and you have the cream of the crop still playing in the Balmain Junior District, combining with a, the cream of the crop and some of the, the moderately good players coming out of the Central Coast. I think if Balmain had moved, made the move to the Central Coast, either as Balmain or Central Coast Tigers and, and kept their identity with the same jerseys, and once again, I'm speculating, I think that would have been much better for Balmain's long-term viability. But that's just a personal opinion. Yeah. I have nothing to back that up. And a, another interesting hypothetical is, so there were talks in you know, 93, 94, not just with Balmain. There were already talks then of a team potentially relocating to the Central Coast. Super League hits, there's the loyalty agreements, which we've we've discussed in our show. I think a lot of clubs, a lot of Sydney clubs, use those loyalty agreements as this beacon they were going to cling to at all costs. And it's like, okay, we have our future secured for five years. We don't need to think about it now. You wonder if Super League didn't come along if someone like a Balmain who could see the way things were changing in Sydney maybe might have gone like, this is an opportunity for us. I really don't know. But I know that's specifically why Balmain didn't really want to go with Super League initially because I think from what I can gather reading between the lines, the club felt indebted to the ARL like South did for giving them a five-year loyalty agreement yeah. and saying you'll survive no matter what happens. And it's it's really interesting. I, I don't know because I think everything, if we discuss hypotheticals in Super League or if certain certain points change in the Super League or certain sliding moments, sliding doors moments didn't occur. I think we're just speculating and it's really hard for me to give any kind of informed opinion about that. So I'm quite hesitant to, to kind of give any kind of opinion outside of, I really think Balmain should have moved to the Central Coast. Yeah. I think that probably, looking back on it, what I now know, I think that would have been the best thing for the club moving forward. Mm. But yeah, I think you're right, given how much outrage moving 20 kilometres down the road and calling yourself Sydney Tigers caused, maybe Central Coast could have been you know, the same thing. It's really hard to say. I think because it was out of Sydney, it would have made a difference. And you, even if you just called yourself the Balmain Central Coast Tigers mm. or something along lines, I just think, from my perspective, I would have found that a lot more palatable as a Balmain fan than the Sydney Tigers moving to Parramatta's home ground. Yeah. And just on Super League, uh, one thing that stands out to me about the Balmain experience in Super League is how poorly Ciro was treated by the ARL. Yeah, I read that. I actually went back and had a look at Ciro Tales from Tiger Town. Big shout out to Dan Lane, uh, who who uh, penned that with Ciro. Yeah, it was a pretty weak offer. I have to understand why he was so outraged. I think I know that this gentleman's become the whipping boy when it comes to uh, to play payments, but it did seem a bit kind of weird that Scott Fulton got paid more money yeah. than, than Paul Ciro did. I know Scott Fulton was young, but. Paul played for two or three more years after the Super Bowl. He played until the end of 1998. And I think, I think the Tigers even asked, were contemplating offering him an extension in 1999. I'm not 100% Mm. sure of that, but he ended up moving to Villeneuve in France. But yeah, I can understand why Paul Surinan really felt aggrieved by that. It wasn't really fair when you're considering that some borderline reserve graders were getting more money. Exactly. And I mean, he'd just come back from his third kangaroo tour. And I mean, it was clear from subsequent events, he wasn't going to be in representative selectors thoughts, you know, beyond that kangaroo tour. But I mean, it's it's just staggering to me that someone who was still so emblematic and such a, a hero in so many people's eyes could have just been like roundly ignored. 
And you know what? Paul Sirinan actually had a bit of a lease of life after that kind of Super League war as well because they had the unlimited interchange. And Wayne Pierce was using him quite well as a as a short burst front rower rather than a wide running second rower. So yeah, I can understand why he felt aggrieved. Paul Sirinan was still quite good in ninety seven. Balmain did the second best defence in ninety seven in the ARL competition. Attack was awful, but I suspect Sierra would have been a big reason why the Balmain Tigers managed to to play reasonably well in nineteen ninety seven. Yeah, uh, it just shows you how out of whack everything is. As does the ultimate counterpoint to Ciro, Steve Edmed. <laughs> Poor Steve. I once again, that's one gentleman who really did not deserve the no. he got. Yeah, and and the, all the all the figures that were bandied around weren't even accurate. And we said it on our show, but it all comes down to that footy show appearance. Phil Gould just saying, "I don't want to single the bloke out, but I'm going to single him out," and you know, say that Steve Edmed got offered a million dollars, which you know was three hundred thousand or so off. Um, and to this day, now that is the first line in Steve Edmed's, you know, rugby league obituary. That's so unfortunate. Steve Edmed is a very good person. I used to referee in the Balmain Junior District, and he used to coach a lot of the teams. And he's a really well respected guy. And it's really disappointing to see how that kind of came out mm. and how he was kind of, one of a better term, ridiculed. Yeah. In in the aftermath of the Super League, well, he didn't deserve that. At no, all. it sucks. Yeah, and it's just awful. And look, if you and I are in the same position, we do the same thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, and and that's the worst thing. Everybody understands that, yet he's still used as a punchline. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I actually am quite irritated by that. Perfectly honest, mm. I think it's just not fair at all. Yeah, he did what anybody with a family would do in that situation—an opportunity to secure my future. Yeah. I'd jump at that. And he, he was not the only one at all. You could yeah. could have named 20 other blokes, 50 yeah. other blokes who got overpaid. Yeah. Uh, and and yet, you know, to this day. So that that's something I I, I do hang on Phil Gould's um, shoulders, that one. Yeah. But so Balmain, for, for the most part, were, were ignored by Super League in, in that early stage. You mentioned Super League then coming to them later, you know, at a point where Super League needed their 10th franchise. What what do you think would have been the likely uh, future for them if they had gone to Super League? They probably would have survived a little longer, I suspect. Um, I mean, it was a pretty big cash injection, four million dollars. It was it was double. It was double their operating what we assume their operating budget to be in nineteen ninety two. So um, it, yeah, it's 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 hard to say. I do think there would be some advantageous kind of circumstances in that regard because if things had continued the same way, Norse and Parramatta would have both gone to the ARL, which meant Balmain would have had basically been the inner city franchise incorporating a bit up towards the central coast and a bit more west of their traditional territory. But then again, what would have happened if it followed the same kind of tune and... um, the ARL was formed and Balmain basically then had to go back and surrender all those, those yeah. territories. It's hard to say. I think they probably would have been slightly more commercial, commercially viable. But once again, it's just all speculation. Mm. You really don't know. Imagine if they went to Super League and they, they could have a lot more money because they turned out to be a good Super League team, got yeah. the grand final or something and got all the revenue from that. Once again, it's it's really hard for me to speculate on that. Part of me is actually quite glad that they stayed with the ARL. I was thinking about this a lot because Super League is a kind of fraught topic and it really divides people's opinions. But my kind of status, my kind of, sorry, my kind of thoughts on this is that I think ultimately Balmain probably did the right thing. 
I think Super League had a lot of great points, particularly in giving the players a greater share of the game, um, giving them better access to money post-retirement and the medical, all the stuff they said about med- medical liability insurance and stuff like that. That was that was bang on the money. That stuff needed to be done. But I've touched, I you and I touched this in another conversation, the kind of way they kind of went through the back door just doesn't sit right for me, even after all these years. I understand why they did it. I know they, I can understand whether they probably felt they felt painted into a corner. But for me, it just seemed quite duplicitous. And I think, I think part of me is is proud that Bowman kind of stuck to its morals, whether those morals were misguided or not. From my perspective, I am proud that Bowman stayed with with the ARL because once again, while I there were a lot of there were a lot of good points to what Super League's vision or Star League's vision. I once I just found the whole the kind of whole sneaking behind people's backs and planning these plans had been in motion since 1994 and then springing this offensive mm. on April 1st 1995 kind of left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. Yeah, clearly with a lot of other people too. And yeah, I mean, at what point do you kind of go, look? the situation with the ARL isn't great, but why don't we try in to work for the greater good rather than just try and create something? Look, the ARL's been obstinate, so why don't we just keep trying to work with them eventually mm. and eventually hope to make a great a breakthrough rather than just let's just start our own competition because we can't work with them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that leads us to the famous backdoor comment from Ken Cowley, you know, making that promise that they would go through the front door and then, you know, a few months later not. Um We've we've litigated that on on our show many times, so I don't don't want to do it again here. But and and maybe this is just because it broke the way it did. But it's it's just so hard to imagine like Balmain as a Super League entity. It's really it really is. I mean, we look at the clubs that stayed stayed loyal to the RL. All of them except Canterbury were established after nineteen sixty seven. Mm. Yeah, Canterbury established in nineteen thirty five was easily the oldest, but every other team. In that comp, like all all the teams, uh, all the teams founded prior to nineteen, no, sorry, all the teams founded prior to uh, Canterbury all stayed loyal. To, sorry, no, obviously not because Manly and Parramatta are younger. But all those traditional teams prior to nineteen sixty seven, the establishment of Penrith and Cronulla, the traditional powerhouses of the game, the bastion of the history, they all stayed loyal to the ARL. So I think Balmain was probably a more logical ARL fit, yeah. kind of old school traditional kind of foundation club. Well, we, we spoke about it with Nick Campton in our North Sydney case study, the, the outsized importance of this notion of a foundation club where you couldn't possibly imagine a foundation club going to Super League. And it, it's made me think in, in the week since, is there another sport or another competition that puts so much importance on being there first when it started? I don't really think so. I don't think there is. Because well, it doesn't happen in American sports because they shift bases so much. I mean, maybe a little bit in English football, but not to the same extent, especially not since the establishment of the Premier League in the 92-93 yeah. season. But yeah, it's really interesting. And I think that's a big part of why Rugby League doesn't, why Rugby League still loves rustic venues and why the movement to more modern venues doesn't work. Because Rugby League... We, we, and this is going to kind of contradict what we said when we said like a lot of people in the in power and rugby league don't really acknowledge its history or respect its history to the same extent. But rugby league's history is a big part of its appeal. It's kind of 
and it's it's linked to your father, your mother, your grandmother. I know this is going to sound so kind of boring, cliched, airy fairy, but it's a big thing. Like, and I think because rugby league was born born out of this kind of desire to create a competition for the common man, and 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 it's faced a lot of adversity. I think the fact that people want to respect the people, the pioneers of the game, the people who took that risk to form this competition. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right, and and it's obviously a massive part. And not a person I've spoken to are doing these series of case studies. When I ask them, you know, where it all starts for them, it's the same story every time. It's you know, my dad went for this team, and I've been watching them. I've been going with my dad, and I've been watching them, you know, all my life. You know, that's where it starts. And I understand the 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 stadiums is is a part of that, but like part of me now as a parent is like I. I want to take my kids to somewhere where it's going to be easy to go to the toilet. They don't have to stand in three inches of piss. I, I want them to be able to sit and, you know, everyone's safe and comfortable. And Leichhardt's great. It's a fantastic place to watch football if you're there on your own and you don't mind, you know, either not having a beer or waiting up for waiting in line for 30 minutes to have one. But I, I just think a heaving Leichhardt is not somewhere I would take my young children to watch a game of footy. And I really understand this. And this is a conflict that I really feel within myself because I am someone who really wants to see rugby league grow on a global stage. I really, really want to see it become a a widely popular, globally recognized sport. But at the same time, I'm one of those people who also wants to hold on to the traditions. And it's like, it's an inner conflict within myself because, but part of me course goes, well, I can't see the game growing without at least I can't see the game growing without us holding on to these traditions, but I can't also see the game growing without us going towards these shiny new yeah. complexes. So it's it's a really hard kind of situation. I feel, from my perspective, I'm painted into a corner because I don't know what the, yeah. the next direction, the next best direction is for rugby league. Yeah, and I think that's a big problem for the game moving forward. But I can't really see a solution because I would not want to see every game go to Bankwest Stadium. I do not want to see every game go to ANZ Stadium. I don't want to see... I think the best solution for rugby league going forward, and I think some clubs do this, if you think you're going to get a massive game for a derby match, move it to a modern yeah. modern stadium. But if you're going to... If it's going to be a crowd or a game where you're with an out-of-Sydney team, an out of Sydney club or you're a Brisbane club or... Well, not Brisbane. I always play at Soundcourt Stadium, but it just this is a very Sydney-centric view. Yeah. But if you're a Sydney club and you're playing the Cowboys and you're not expecting a big crowd, play it at Leichhardt. Mm. Play it at Brookvale. Play it at... God, even Belmore yeah. play it there, played at Cogra. But look, the best example is Parramatta v Balmain. Oh, sorry, Parramatta v, v the West Tigers should never be played a Leichhardt no. because you know the the Eels fans are going to come. That should be a Bank West. That that is a game is going to draw a, a big crowd. But like Balmain, for, sorry, why do I keep saying this? West Tigers v the Cowboys, Leichhardt or Campbelltown? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because no, their fans can't. Their fans, the vast majority of their fans, aren't going to travel from Townsville to go and watch them play an away game in a rustic stadium. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of sense there. I mean, I, I would like to see, you know, say four Bank Wests across Sydney. I think you could turn Cogra into the, the Bank West of the South and, you know, and, and as you said, kind of use those traditional grounds more sparingly but not lose touch with the history. But like one thing I think of is, I know you're a big Jets guy as well. You go to, to Henson Park to watch the Jets and it's everything you want from the experience of, watching rugby league yeah um and i wonder if there's a way to to market that more broadly and, and have every like club or every area have its own version of that yeah it's 
it's it's really hard. And I think this is a big problem in, in rugby league. It's a sport, its traditional roots are obviously, in some regards, of a detriment to it. But at the same time, it's also one of its biggest appeals. And this is this is the $6 million question for rugby league as a code. How does it manage to successfully grow and straddle these two kind of identities? Because, yeah, I really don't know. And this is... It's, it, this is stuff that I, I know it sounds so irrelevant because we're talking about sport, but this is stuff that I actually think about a lot. And yeah. It kind of causes me a little bit of you know conflict in a way. It's so hard. It's so hard. When we were doing before we started with the you know the Super League war and we were doing our week to week show, Andy and I would come up with so many theories and they've got to do this, they've got to go here, they've got to get out of here, and you come in with all this bluster, and then whatever you do is like disaffecting somebody. Yeah, and it's. How do you strike the balance? I don't know. It's so tough. I think the big thing about it, and a lot of internationalists say this, and I'm inclined to agree with them, the two biggest, the three things we should be focused on to grow the game, international footy. And we don't need to have NRL stars playing in it. We just need some fine quality athletes from emerging nations playing good competitive games. Women's footy, because it's not as structured and not only does it obviously open up the game to a, a much needed demographic, but it also it's a little less structured and it's a lot it's, it can actually be sometimes a bit more interesting to watch than than NRL because they're not robots they're trying chip kicks on the third tackle, and the other thing is nines. I know Steve Mascord's a big fan of a nine circuit, and I think Paul Broughton, the old who's working who used to work at the NSWRL, mm. is trying to get an international nine circuit as well. I think those are the things we need to grow because we don't need to present to them the best of the best to grow them these emerging nations. We just need to present to them the kind of best features of the game. And that's where I really want to see the kind of game grow and people go, you're naive. Yeah, probably. But I really just want to see the game grow. I think it is, as a product, the perfect combination of brute force, speed and athleticism. And I think that if people on a global scale gave it a go, they'd go, well, this is a great product. I want to watch more of it. Yeah, great words and a lot to think about there. Let's just finish by bringing it all back home. Uh, and just, I, I want to get your thoughts on, you know, now 20 years of the West Tigers. Like, what do you think of this as a concept? How do you think the mergers worked and, and what's the future? Mate, this is a Pandora's box. We've ever, <laughs> ever offered encountered one. I think the merger, look, on a very base level, the merger clearly worked. It won a premiership. And we, if the West, we won it before Saints did, uh, before St. George of Laura Dragons. Sorry, Steelers fans. Um, we won it before they did. So in that regard, it's worked really well. Yes, it's had a lot of problems with two warring factions. It's had a lot of problems with with Balmain having to surrender a part of their share in it. But I think at a really kind of base level, it works. I think the rational fans have a respect for each other on both sides of the merger. I think... The rational fans understand the club needs to be a united entity to move forward. And I think if it can just get its act together a little more, become a little more professional, have a little bit better facilities to attract a bit a bit more star power, I think it can be quite successful. I think, look, people say, oh, it's a mediocre club. It does nothing. It's only made three final series. Penrith took 17 years, 18 years to make their first final series. Like, as far as rugby league teams go, they're hardly the bottom of the barrel. Mm. 
Yeah. I, I guess for me, the big question is, is it the West Tigers yet? You know, it, it just seems these factions are, are so hard to, to overcome, like both in, in terms of the internal warring between them and also in public consciousness. I think this kind of perception will eventually go away through the fact that we are now, most kids who are coming into rugby league now, most people in their 20s or in their early to mid-20s would have never watched Balmain Mm. or Western Suburbs play. So you now have a generation of fans who are starting to become people who spend their discretionary income on going to football, who are really invested in football. This generation are now going to be the ones who influence the kind of dialogue surrounding the game. So I think as these people who've never seen Balmain or Western Suburbs play come of age, we'll have a lot more kind of, unite, there'll be a lot more of a united front, a lot more. And we touched on we touched on this whole kind of thing of people constantly leading on Balmain legends to get um, opinions. And I think that will now change because we have the likes of Robbie Farrar, potentially Benji Marshall, Scott Prince. These guys aren't playing anymore. They don't have a stake in the game anymore. They can now come up and say, oh, I'm a West Tigers legend. I'm entitled to say this kind of stuff. And I think as these people become more prominent, as time kind of progresses and we move away from from Balmain and Western Suburbs, West Tigers will become an entity. Mm. I, I hope you're right. I, th- I think the game needs it. Look, I'm Balmain to the core and as shameful as this may say, say as a West Tigers supporter, I would have preferred Balmain to stand alone, but that's not the case. We are West Tigers now. We are West Tigers for as far as I can see forever and this is what we're going to be. We're going to move as a united front and we're going to the only way we're going to move forward is if we're a united club, and that's what I want to see. Oh, well, we, we should be a united club that acknowledges our history, but not let our history overshadow who we are. Uh, that's a, a nice way of putting it, and I think a nice way to end it. Uh, this has been a really interesting chat, Stephen. Uh, we, we got sidetracked quite a number of times, but I had a lot of fun going through it all. Thank so. you. It was really good, and thank you very much for having me, and I apologize, viewers, for the side, uh, for listeners for the sidetrack. I hope it wasn't too boring from my perspective. Oh, well, I had a lot of fun, so I'm sure everyone else will as well. So uh, thank you for joining me, and we will speak to you next week. Thank you.